Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, October 31st, 2021. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. And I was just looking at our intro here and I was like, is there anything scary about it? But there is. We're talking about hosts, hosts that, (laughs) you know, could take over bodies. And well, I was thinking that we don't really have we're not we haven't talked about roundtables nearly as much. And Mm -hmm. they're practically ghosts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So spooky. I, I, I guess that leads to the question Naomi were there any nods towards Halloween on any of your yes. shows yes so people Chris Wallace and I believe Dana Bash as well asked transportation secretary Pete Buttigieg what his kids were going to be for Halloween he has these newborn twins they're two months old and he mentioned that his husband Chastin had found some traffic cones you know construction cones for their kids so they were pretty much infrastructure Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of wondering what that looks like, though. Are they just like They look like little the orange. Cones? Yeah, they're little orange cones. <laughs> I saw really the pictures. Cute. They were very cute. That's very cute. How very about cute. you? Any Halloween nuts? Uh, at the end of Meet the Press, Chuck Todd said, This is a day where we all agree on one thing. Everybody should wear a mask tonight. Happy trick or treating. Very cute. Yeah. <laughs> Although I was always a fan of makeup instead of masks because... Oh, my gosh. Growing up in Florida, wearing those masks, they get so hot and uncomfortable and they're all this smelly rubber. Uh, yeah. I I mean, <laughs> I've learned to accept it because of the pandemic. But in general, I don't like things covering up my face. Yeah. All these rubber masks during the pandemic. Wait, were they not supposed to be rubber? <laughs> we are very ridiculous. safe. <laughs> anyway. Brendan, what did you look at today show-wise? Well, as I mentioned, I looked at Meet the Press and I looked at This Week. Yeah, so I covered the other three. So I looked at Fox News Sunday, Face the Nation, and State of the Union. And all of them were hosted by their kind of typical hosts. Well, State of the Union is Right, it was the co-host Dana Bash, but she's not a sub. She's a co-host. Absolutely. Yeah, I I had Chuck Todd and George Stephanopoulos. All the regulars are in. <laughs> yep. For a holiday. I know. Surprising. Go spend time with your kids. I mean, I guess it's early in the morning and trick-or-treating is in like late afternoon. Yeah. So before we dive into today's show, I just wanted to briefly note kind of what we're not talking about. There was quite a bit on the show. Those... We're not talking about anything but Halloween. <laughs> just be aware. We are so ready. We're so jazzed for Halloween. <laughs> Even though we just covered everything that the show said about <laughs> there's still an hour left to poly no but <laughs> so we're not really talking about the virginia governor the gubernatorial race mostly because it bores us well and also it's good everything we say is going to be moot in like two days when the race is over it's also boring but yeah unless you're in virginia and you're excited by but arguments general, over education i would say we're both of the mind that nationalizing every race 
is annoying. Is, is annoying. We already covered that. We've yeah. already covered that. Yes. I'm also not really talking too much or at all about Biden's trip abroad. There hasn't been anything. I mean, there's the new corporate, the global corporate tax rate that that is substantial. But other than that, it's just kind of updates of his trip abroad. And so there wasn't anything like great questions or great responses. Although Blinken was on a couple of the shows. I just didn't find it super dialogue worthy. Yeah, it was by in a blink. Oh, my God. Brendan. I am so sorry, everybody. I hear that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't believe you said that out loud. Anyway, so I am focusing today's conversation mostly about infrastructure. How about you, Brendan? I'm going to actually cover a number of topics in mine, and I'm going to focus on narrative. Three examples of political journalism narrative. So that's going to be my focus. Okay. All right. Interesting. But none of those topics that you mentioned. Right. So let's dive right into it. Quality questionable. I have a quality moment. Brendan, how about you? I do as well. I'll go first. Great. So my quality moment was the last interview I heard on Face the Nation. It was with Claire Bugard. She's a doctor and the medical director of the COVID-19 vaccine program at the Children's National Hospital in D.C. I just appreciated that Face the Nation was focused on the excitement and the good news and the positivity that the FDA has authorized the Pfizer vaccine for 5 to 12-year-olds. Well, 5 to 11. 12 has already been approved. But yeah, 5 and up are now approved, at least on the FDA side, for the Pfizer vaccine. Next, it goes to the CDC for their independent regulatory bodies to confirm that same criteria. There has been some news coverage this weekend about skeptical parents about whether or not they're going to vaccinate their children. I'm giving a lot of side eye to the New York Times. And it's just like, I don't know. I know this is newsworthy, a newsworthy angle, but like it doesn't have to be the first angle because it seems to me this groundbreaking research deserves a moment. And there's a lot of parents who have been waiting for it. And that was the focus on Face the Nation, which I super appreciated. Take a listen to this first clip in which Dr. Bugard talks about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine for children 5 to 11. No, I think this is all really good news. What the Independent Advisory Panel and the FDA looked at last week was really good science. They didn't skip any steps in this process. And the best news, both professionally, as someone who wants to take care of my patients, but also as a mom of a six-year-old, is that this is awesome. There are no serious side effects given this lower dose of the vaccine to this lower group of kids, and it still protects kids from getting the infection. So this type of technology, the mRNA vaccine, you don't have any misgivings about giving it to someone who's young and developing. No, not at all. Vaccines, all they do is they give your body a chance to build a response to something that's non-harmful so it can protect you against something that is harmful. And everything is risk-benefit. If there was no coronavirus in the country, we wouldn't be talking about a vaccine, right? But instead, there's this life-threatening disease floating around our communities. And in order to protect us, this is the safest, most effective way to do so. And I should mention Dr. Bugard at the Children's National Hospital as part of the COVID-19 vaccine program actually ran the trials like her hospital was one of the trial sites for the kids vaccine so she literally like monitored children in in the trial itself so she saw this data firsthand at least at her facility 
I also appreciate that Margaret Brennan mentioned the kids who are even younger than this who still can't get vaccinated and ask for some guidance for those families. So kids who are younger than five years old, my children, toddlers, infants, um, they're still going to have to wait. Pfizer said well into 2022 before they get vaccinated. So what's your best advice to the parents of the very young? Just stay vigilant. I'm with you, too. I have a four-year-old, so I hear you loud and clear. Uh, But be optimistic. Uh, They are also lowering the dose for that group, too. Keep in mind, this Pfizer vaccine has now been given to millions of people. We're just now offering it a lower dose to a younger population who has a strong immune system. So I'm optimistic that the research will still look really positive in the young kids. And I also know that scientists take this very seriously. They do not want to offer something that's going to harm people. Myself as a doctor, I don't want to I don't want to go out advocating for something that I don't think is safe. Um, so I promise hope is coming. We're almost at the end of this. Uh, but for those who are unvaccinated, you are still at risk um, for getting the virus itself. So keep with the social distancing, masking and follow the public health guidelines in your area. Well, except some kids, you know, younger than five can't wear masks. Well, that too. I was just kind of super annoyed with the coverage this weekend that jumped to the vaccine skeptics in the Times. And I felt like, gee, maybe underscoring the efficacy of the vaccine and the rigorous trial process might help (laughs) eliminate some of that. And so I appreciated that this initial coverage was focused on that instead. Yeah. And hearing from someone who was involved in that, that is extremely helpful. Totally. Brendan, what's your quality moment? So my quality moment is just a little nod to a very brief piece at the end of this week, focusing on Cokie Roberts. If you remember Cokie Roberts, longtime journalist, political commentator, at one point co-host of this week, passed away two years ago of cancer. And her husband, who is also a journalist, is named Steve Roberts, has recently published a book called Cokie, A Life Well Lived, and they had just a little piece about that. Take a listen. This is Cokie Roberts' husband, Steve Roberts. There are a lot of women in the very early days who felt they had to choose between a professional career and a personal and a personal life. And here was Cokie coming in with two kids, six grandkids, a long marriage, and so many women saw her as a role model because that's the life they wanted. But beyond that, she encouraged them. She said, you can do this. It is possible, but you can have it most of the time. One of her assistants said to me, there would be a line outside her door of of, of people seeking her counsel, seeking her advice, and, and above all, seeking her encouragement. She was a great cheerleader. So overall, I thought this was a really nice segment. And this moment here, you know, talks about her role as kind of a trailblazer among female journalists of her time, showing that you didn't have to defenestrate the idea of a family in order to advance your career. And Cokie Roberts, you know, paved the way for journalists like Margaret Brennan, who we just heard in that clip, talks about having her own children and yet being the host of the top Sunday news show. Absolutely. You know, she was often described as one of the mothers of NPR, where her career originally started and was such a force in so many news institutions. It's interesting to hear this. Uh, I actually had Steve Roberts as a professor in college. And he even then, which was many, 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 many years ago, spoke so highly of his wife. And like, they just sounded like such a team, like 
they loved each other's work and were cheerleaders and collaborators and and confidants and and he just bragged about her all the time it was pretty amazing so i'm not remotely surprised that this is one of his big priorities after she passed i had forgotten that it was a great class it was wonderful well a very nice quality moment absolutely well brendan i think i don't know if i have any classmates from gw i think his class was narrative journalism oh is that right i think it was another great class that I took at the same semester that it might have been that class instead. But there's a 50-50 chance it was narrative journalism <laughs> that I took with him. And so let's start with your segment. Yes, which is about narrative. Wh- what the angle is that these journalists are approaching a number of stories. So we're just going to look at something like two clips or so in three different areas throughout the shows that I covered. And so the first one I wanted to look at is the one that's probably at the top, top, top of everyone's news, political news feed. And that is the Build Back Better agenda of Joe Biden, where that is, where it's going. And my goodness, I mean, I feel like both Meet the Press and This Week, the narrative was very much from both of these journalists, Chuck Todd and George Stephanopoulos, was very much like, wow, you've compromised a lot. There's, you've really kind of given up on this legislation or you don't have a lot to show for it or you're coming up short as they were speaking to administration officials. And of course, the officials pushed back on those narratives. But it's so interesting too, as I was putting this together to reflect also on just the energy and the engagement levels of each of these interviews Chuck Todd spoke with Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm. And my God, looking at the transcript of this, it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, totally engaged conversation. This week, George Stephanopoulos spoke with Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of Transportation, and it was question, several paragraphs of Pete talking. Question, several paragraphs of Pete talking. It was just so different. So, so, so different. So I would say that Pete had the easier job because he just had to like spout off his talking points in long discursive episodes, whereas Jennifer Granholm had to really sit forward and engage to push back on Chuck Todd's narrative. So let's begin with Secretary Granholm and Chuck Todd's perspective that he just kept pushing and pushing. Look, this is a case where I've asked this, were the political eyes bigger than the political stomach when you guys proposed what you did? Because this is a case where you've over-promised and under-delivered. You're talking about the things that are in this bill. Let's talk about what's not in this Why? bill. Paid Why? family leave yes. and prescription drugs. The fight is drug. not over, though, Chuck. This is not as though we're okay. done and we're going to go home. <laughs> right, but what's this realistic? This is a compromise. What's, what's amazing is that we will have, between the bipartisan infrastructure bill and this framework, mm-hmm. we will have $3 trillion of investment in our nation that we have not had before. I mean, in my column of, right. of remit, which is in energy, I mean, the amount of, of investment that will be for clean technologies and putting people to work and having America lead in this as we go into COP is amazing. Look, you're doing a terrific job of selling what's in it. But the problem is there's a whole bunch of people that yes, have been disappointed of what's not in it. You don't get everything you ask for all the time. This all right, is but why me, compromise. Me, the president campaigned and said compromise is not a dirty word. That's literally just 60 seconds of that conversation. And you can hear how dynamic it is. And right from the start, Granholm is like, as Chuck Todd says, let's talk about what's not in the bill. And she's like, why, why, why? (laughs) 
Those 60 seconds were literally better than all the clips I'm going to show you having the same exact conversation. Oh, really? Yeah, totally. Wow. Wow. So both parties very engaged in this conversation feels something like a debate, but also we're getting some interesting tidbits and facts from Secretary Granholm as well. So I'm not saying here that this narrative is the wrong narrative, but approaching it with this narrative which is clearly in conflict with the administration's narrative, creates a very engaged dialogue. Let's take a listen to what happened on This Week with Pete Buttigieg. You say the American people are impatient, but we have a new poll out this morning with Ipsos, one that shows shows that 69% of the public doesn't know much about the bill. 32% think it will actually hurt them. So has this been a failure of communications? Well, I think that gives me a great opportunity to remind Americans about some of what's in this. Uh, For example, if you're watching this broadcast and you have kids, nine out of ten chance that you will personally benefit to the tune of hundreds or thousands of dollars from that child tax credit expansion. If you have been thinking about getting an electric vehicle and the, the savings in fuel that would come from that, think about what your family could do with up to a $12,500 discount on electric vehicles, which we're doing, uh, of course, uh, not just because it's going to benefit your family, but because it's going to benefit those American jobs making them and, importantly, benefit the climate. Think about the real-world, everyday impact that it will make for millions of Americans to get that support for childcare that's unaffordable. And by the way, one of the other reasons why it's so important to get that, those childcare provisions through is that's also going to help with inflation. Uh, we got a lot of people who are unable to return to the labor market because they can't get childcare. That is a drag on our economy, and it's one of the things that's creating upward pressure on prices, which is why 17 Nobel Prize-winning economists signed a letter talking about the benefits with regard to inflation that'll come from this bill. So that's a little over a minute, way less dynamic, very much kind of a speech. Pete is going step by step down his list of good things that are in the bill. And he makes some pretty strong cases or or explanations here, but there's not a lot of dynamism in that conversation. It's like a press conference. I mean, Buttigieg is doing Biden's bidding, like he's doing his job, but the host themselves is not directing the conversation very well. Yeah. And I think part of it, too, is that George's kind of perspective here, his question is a little weak. I mean, it's pretty weak, actually. It's quite weak. He says, has this been a failure of communication? Okay, fine. Like, that's always something that can be improved upon. It just it's not really a a hard question. It's kind of like setting Buttigieg up to do exactly what he's doing here, which is communicating what's in the bill. So let's move on to the issue of climate change. And climate change is pretty high on the list of topics for Joe Biden on his foreign trip. He will be going to Glasgow for the UN Climate Conference as part of that. And there are some big items related to climate change on the G20 agenda this week. In line with that... ABC News itself has committed to covering climate-related topics in kind of like a a month-long special with a series of reports on different programs. So this week actually devoted a good amount of time to that. They actually had two segments on the topic of climate, which is more than they usually have. They didn't actually have a lot of scientists, which I know irks climate activists, but at least they were talking about it. They began talking about it with a report by Nate Silver. 
this is where it's kind of interesting to get a sense of the narrative approach here. In Gallup polling this spring, for example, 65% of Americans say they worry about global warming a great deal or a fair amount. That's up from 51% when the same question was asked 10 years ago. And 64% think that global warming is the result of human activities, which is up from 52% in 2011. That's a pretty broad consensus in a country where the public is closely divided on many issues, but will it lead to action at the federal level? I'm pretty skeptical for a few reasons. Finally, there's the issue of prioritization. Pew polling in 2020 found that climate change ranked 11th in importance out of 12 issues they asked voters about. And even for Biden voters, it was fifth below healthcare, COVID, racial inequality, and the economy. Democrats still have a shot to squeeze some climate-related policy out of their spending bill. But barring that, I don't really buy that the political forces are aligned on climate change. Wow, those special effects felt really loud today. Yes. Extremely loud. It was actually kind of hard to hear when he said pew poll. <laughs> <laughs> but... There you hear Nate Silver saying, yeah, climate change, there's a lot of people who agree on it, there's a consensus nationally on it, but it's pretty low on the list of priorities, and therefore not a lot's going to happen related to it. So (laughs) approaching it from that perspective made the next segment feel kind of weird. (laughs) And I should just say, like, I actually pretty strongly disagree with this conclusion. You didn't hear all of Nate's points that he made. A few of them talked about the structure of the Senate and how there are a lot of rural states that depend upon fossil fuels as their industry and that our the structure of the Senate means that they have more power in our federal system than more populous states. But passing giant pieces of legislation is just the tip of the iceberg on what we can do related to climate change. Famously, Joe Biden re-entered the Paris Climate Accords On day one of his presidency, he has been rewriting environmental law after President Trump did the same. (laughs) So there are definitely things that are, are happening, can happen beyond the federal government. And so assuming that everything is going to be held up by the Senate is not necessarily, or that there's going to be like no action because of that is not true. On top of the fact that some states, including big ones like California, are always doing dramatic things related to climate that can have an impact. Right. Well, didn't Governor Jerry Brown actually go to the Paris climate? I don't know. There was some like big climate. Oh, yeah. I, I remember him. Doing remember? Yeah. And then like Trump didn't send any of his admin. Yes. And Jerry Brown's like, well, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's the position that the at least Nate Silver, is approaching this issue on. But then there was a special report by Martha Raddatz. So if you remember last time we saw Martha Raddatz, she was in L.A. at the ports. She's been there ever since. (laughs) No, she decided to continue moving west, and now she's crossed half of the Pacific Ocean and finds herself in Hawaii. (laughs) Homegirl needed a break. (laughs) But she filed this report. Take a listen to some of it. Over the past century, three of Hawaii's major islands have lost roughly one quarter of their beaches. Sea levels are rising about one inch every four years, threatening 70% of the state's coastline. You're born and raised here. Born and raised. And it's not just beaches at risk. People are struggling to protect their homes, like Philemon Sedang who was born and raised here near the water. Ocean was far out to sea, about 150 feet. Now you have zero. Are you in fear of losing your place? Well, we're all in fear of losing our place. 
We have to do something now, temporary, until we can retreat. Temporary fixes like seawalls and sandbags line the beaches as a way to protect property. But they're a double-edged sword, exponentially speeding up the erosion of the beaches by ripping up the seafloor and blocking natural sand replenishment. So this report is really well done, and she tackles it from a lot of different perspectives and angles, including roads that are also uh, at risk in Maui. But I really wanted to highlight this moment because as a visitor to Hawaii and a lover of all issues of geology and ecology, when she started talking about seawalls being built, I was like, no, but doesn't she know that seawalls speed up erosion? A lot of people don't know this. And is she really going to? And then the next line, she's like, but it speeds up erosion. And I was like, yes, she got it right. I was very impressed. Very, very impressed. Uh, A really, really good report focusing on what's happening in climate change right now in a place that a lot of people don't think of as a location where climate change is active, right? I think it's very easy to say, oh, well, climate change is stronger hurricanes, right? Climate change is fires in the West. But no, climate change is also what's happening in these beautiful places like Hawaii, right under people's noses. Absolutely. And, you know, Hawaii is one island that is part of the U.S. that has a lot more support. But there's a lot of other islands throughout the South Pacific and throughout the world with a lot smaller economies that are going to be severely impacted by climate change. And so, you know, the top governments, the top economies, the top polluters really have an extra burden to get emissions under control and, you know, mitigate and get these mitigations in place because smaller countries, smaller islands like are going to be impacted first. Right. And that's mentioned, you know, there are other you know, nations out there that are dealing with this. And indeed, the I think it's the county of Maui is suing some of these large fossil fuel companies for the damages that they are producing. I do want to mention this uh, perspective of going to a place that people don't often think of as impacted by climate reminds me a lot of my favorite chapter in the Jared Diamond book, Collapse, where he looks at the collapse of various civilizations, but he begins the story looking at the current ecological damage taking place in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana, which people often think of as extremely beautiful and pristine, but has so many issues as a result of human activity there. And a lot of that book by Diamond is talking about how humans throughout history have damaged the ecology of the world around them, and that has led to major issues, including the collapse of civilization. So highly recommended read. Finally, let's move on to the issue of January 6th and the insurrection, because there were two moments that really stood out to me as quite dramatic. And the angle, or one might say the narrative, the political narrative on this issue, at least among these hosts, feels pretty consistent. Take a listen to Chuck Todd speaking with Brad Raffensperger. If you remember, he is the current Secretary of State of Georgia. He's the one who stood up to Donald Trump and said he would not overturn the results in Georgia, even though Trump asked him to on like an hour-long phone call. Take a listen to this series of questions 
by Chuck Todd. You know, another point of the call, the president said, there's nothing wrong with you saying that you, you're recalculated. And, and you wrote in this book that essentially the president was asking me to do something that I knew was wrong. You mean he was asking you to break the law, right? He was asking you to commit a crime. Well, there's nothing to recalculate because if you look at the numbers, the numbers are the numbers. And so you can slice that, dice that any way you want. But at the end of the day, President Trump came up 11,800 votes short. And I had the numbers. Uh, the Fulton County District Attorney has been investigating whether the president did break any laws in that phone call to you. Have you, I know you've turned over documents and various things. Have you been interviewed by investigators? You hadn't the last time we talked. Have you since? No, I haven't been. I think she's uh, busy with other matters. She has an awful lot of other cases mm -hmm. that she inherited. But uh, we've fully complied, uh, sent all the documents that we had, and she actually uh, talked to some of our uh, staff members. So if she wants to interview me, there's a process for that, and I will gladly participate in that because uh, I want to make sure that I follow the law, follow the Constitution. So the narrative here by Chuck Todd is, my God, the president broke the law. What is being done about this? We need to talk about this. Where's this investigation going? This is extremely important. And the political reality is, hmm, this lady's busy. I mean, she's busy with other matters. She's got matters. She's got a lot of other cases that she's inherited. You know, she's, she's buried under paperwork. It's like, what? Isn't this extremely important stuff? Similarly, take a listen to this question, which 10 years ago, we would think was completely unthinkable. Just listen to the wording of this question by George Stephanopoulos as he's speaking with Adam Kinzinger. He is a Republican. He's a representative from the state of Illinois. He is on the January 6th committee. And he just announced that he's not running for re-election. Yes, which is why he was on. But they talked about some other things, including this. Got it. Based on what you've seen, do you think there are going to be grounds to prosecute President Trump for his role in the insurrection? You know, I don't feel comfortable making that statement yet. I'll say this. Um, we're getting a lot of information. We, we are continuing to learn things every day, some of which gets out to the press, some that doesn't. Um, if the president was aware of what was going to happen, didn't do anything, didn't lift a finger to do anything about it, that's up to the DOJ to make that decision. We can put out the facts. So here, this is almost the exact same situation. First of all, look at that question by George Stephanopoulos. Based on what you've seen, do you think there are going to be grounds to prosecute President Trump for his role in the insurrection? Imagine someone 10 years ago hearing that sentence. And even let's take out the word Trump, because that's a whole other story that you have to answer. <laughs> I have to but imagine. Just, are there grounds to prosecute the president for his role in the insurrection? Like what? What insurrection? What? The president had a role in an insurrection and could be prosecuted? That seems crazy. And yet it's just an everyday conversation here on the Sunday shows. The narrative is very similar to what we heard on Meet the Press. It's, this seems serious. The president seems like he broke the law. What's going to be done about it? And Kinzinger says, well, we're looking into it, and then we'll hand it over to the DOJ, and it's up to them to decide whether they prosecute. Just once again, it's like, really? Is this, is this how our laws are working? They're just, you know, based on however people feel or... When they're not buried in other cases that they're dealing with. It is. It is how the law operates. I thought it was a... I don't... Dis, it was a very responsible answer by Kinzinger. No, I know. It is. It is. A, I, agree. I agree. Yeah. But I think he does a good job of talking about, like, there's a lot of work happening in the committee. Some of it that the public finds out about. 
now or is leaked and a lot that isn't. And yes, you know, I think that's really important that we all recognize that there's a lot that's being compiled that will get sent to the DOJ and looking forward to seeing whatever report comes out of that committee. So I think one thing that stands out looking at particularly the first example and the last example, the example of the legislative narrative and then the narrative on this January 6th commission is how consistent the narratives are across different shows. But the shows often approach these issues in a very similar way, right? Both Chuck Todd and George Stephanopoulos on the topic of legislation were skeptical of the administration, felt like they were, as Chuck Todd said, overpromising and under-delivering. And then similarly on the January 6th issue, both Chuck Todd and George Stephanopoulos were of the mind that looks like Trump did something wrong. What is going to be done about that? But that doesn't mean those are the only possible narratives on these issues. Absolutely. So every time we see particularly that consistency, it's worth asking what other perspectives and angles are being missed or what information could be surfaced to the viewer if those angles were at least discussed on the shows. That's interesting. And I think the other thing is like, what's the narrative over time? And... On the one hand, it could be very helpful to have, you know, a narrative that builds over time as more information is learned, as the story progresses and evolves. But there's something to be said about just innate curiosity and kind of exploring that or exploring a new angle that you didn't know existed or you didn't know was as interesting as it as it turned out to be and kind of sharing that process and those findings with your audience, whether that's viewers or readers or whatever. And I feel like sometimes we don't see those deviations that much. And it's a shame because like, (laughs) I don't know, as like a curious, nosy person, like I'm always delighted when I learn something I wasn't expecting to learn. And sometimes those are those moments are really missing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for example, just to use one example before we move on to yours, if you look at this consistent narrative on the issue of the insurrection, both Chuck Todd and Adam Kinzinger's focus on these issues was Donald Trump. But another narrative might be, okay, let's put aside Trump and just ask, what's going to be the controls the next time, right? Or how can we make sure something like this doesn't happen again? Or, okay, there was an insurrection, it didn't succeed, so something at least went right, right? What how can we reinforce that? There's a lot of different narratives that don't necessarily focus on the players that are always focused on. Naomi, you wanted to talk about something related to this legislation, I believe. Yeah, so I wanted to look at the decision by the Biden administration and congressional leaders to pare down the Build Back Better plan, excluding many key provisions that are very popular like paid family leave, community college, the energy program. Prescription prescription, drug negotiating prices down. The Medicare drug program, including vision and dental for Medicare as well. I mean, many of these programs are highly popular with the American people, but they couldn't convince two senators to include it. And those two senators are Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. And I'm not sure what I expected. <laughs> it, it, I, I, 
I'm not sure how the Biden administration on the Sunday news shows today could have spin this better. I think they're doing as good of a job to remain optimistic and to keep the energy and momentum going so they can actually pass these two infrastructure bills. I get that. At the same time, I was surprised and a little frustrated by just how weak some of the questioning was in exploring how disappointed they were that they were going weren't going to include some of these programs, what their tangible next steps were to fight for them in future iterations of work. Um, you know, you, you showed a clip, Brendan, about Jennifer Granholm. She's like, well, the work doesn't end. We're still going to fight for it. And I heard that a lot today. But like, how? With who? Is that going to be you know, something that you get done before 2022? Is that something that you do on a bipartisan basis? Like in what world, in what way are you actually going to accomplish these things? And so in thinking about, you know, this whole negotiation process in which the Build Back Better plan had to be slimmed down, I just thought like it feels like there's no consequence, at least so far, to the two senators and their role in making this as slim as possible, or there's very little focus on on them individually. And I felt just very frustrated. So I have a few interviews today that I wanted to look at that kind of depict this or briefly touched at it, but maybe could have gone more deeply. The first interview is with Gina Raimundo. She is the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, and she was on Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan was pretty clear here that, you know, like, hey, lady, you said paid family leave was really important, and it's MIA. What are your thoughts? I want to ask you about the president's framework agenda here. The U.S. is, as you know, because you're passionate about this, paid family leave. We don't have it in this country. The president promised it was coming. It's not in this framework. That was a concession he made. You have said this is so essential to getting the economy going. How disappointed are you that that was just given up? I am unbelievably excited that we are on the precipice of passing the most significant piece of domestic legislation in 50 years. Public pre-K, broadband for every American, massive investments in childcare. As a woman, as a working mother, I know how essential this is. But you, know, you said paid leave was essential to get paid women back into the workplace, too, and, and that's will, not in this. We will continue to fight for that. You know, no, I don't think anyone ever expected the president would pass his entire domestic agenda in the first 10 months. So one thing that I find missing in this question and in the other examples, there's kind of no data or statistical comparison about just like the utter embarrassment that is the the fact that we have no paid family leave in this country in comparison to other developed nations or the state of women <laughs> in the, yeah. after they give birth. You know, there's like zero details. It's just like, it's important, but like no clear examples as to why it's important. There's also no attention on the women Democratic senators who were furious that this was being cut and did a lot of last minute negotiations trying to get Manchin to to agree to it well and this question it's like did jake tapper write this question for her the question is how disappointed are you that that was just given up is that actually gonna lead to anything that type of question and just the extreme pivot to say i'm so excited for everything else is just like no no she says i am unbelievably excited (laughs) it's like what (laughs) it's it's just cringy i don't know why it just makes my like skin crawl the utter like about face 
of it all. Right. But Margaret Brennan continues on with Secretary Raimundo trying to understand, like, when exactly paid family leave is supposed to happen. It looks like he's trying to pass most of his domestic agenda in the first 10 months. And this is not in it. This is not in it. So the argument, though, throughout this from Democrats has been, if not now, when? This is a unique historic opportunity. It has to go all now in this big bill. And this is something you were so passionate about. And I am still passionate about it. But this is not going to happen if Democrats lose the majority, is it? I don't believe that's going to happen. Again, the president's package, which which we believe will be passed very soon, probably hopefully this week, provides tangible improvements to people's lives. Better roads, better bridges, better airports, broadband for everybody, child care, public pre-K. It is historic. Mm-hmm. Then we get to work continuing to fight for paid leave. You know, we're not backing away from it. It is necessary, but nor should we take away from the the monumental nature of what is in this package. Well, one thing that's interesting here is it appears, you know, we kept getting this question again and again and again for months. We, it was ad nauseum. We couldn't stand it. Is it better to do everything for less money or to pick and choose a few items to do, quote unquote, well, or to fund for a longer period? Right. So those are the two options. And it looks like they chose to cut whole programs. No, out. they did both. They did both. The other. Well, that's true. They did. They did. Do they both. did both because the child care tax credit, which they're like flaunting as a huge accomplishment, is extended for one fucking Just, year. It's ridiculous. They're acting like it's permanently extended and it is not. Right. Right. But they definitely chose to cut things. Yeah. Large objects and i feel like if there ever was a question of which one would play better in the press it should be pretty obvious that the press can very easily glom onto this issue that you said was important is now not in the bill right or if it was in the bill even a little bit they wouldn't be like complaining as much about it or they wouldn't get as men- as much critical questioning about it or put some like substantial meat behind this defense saying like you know what we chose these programs to fund because we couldn't get the funding for you know at least 5 years for paid family leave and we believe that's the best case for right, it to be successful right. there's or nothing whatever. like that there's nothing defending the choice of eliminating it completely so you just have a lot of pissed off families and pissed off yeah. women or or they could have said something like you know we wanted 12 weeks we were going to offer four and we decided that wasn't good enough and we're going to go for 12 Right, and, and we're going to fight for 12, right. you know, and that's our goal. Like, There's very easy messaging that they could have had that could have been way better and more, rather than just saying, oh, well, let's talk about what's in it, not what's not. Right, and like... It's weak. It's so weak, and it shows that they're, they're not willing to stake a claim on even the things they lost. And they're not actually speaking to those constituencies that care about exactly there's and and that's the part and like you want to keep them motivated to vote for you in the midterms and all you have are these really angry people you know and the it's not voted on but like paid family leave is not coming back between like sunday night at 11 o'clock and tuesday when they vote on this right so assuming it passes like it's not going to include some of these programs and And it's just, you have to give something for people to hold on to, to believe that you're actually going to keep fighting for this, as opposed to just running away, like sprinting away from the question. Right. And as we just spitballed here for like a minute, 
it's so easy to come up with more meaningful answers than I'm just going to pivot to what's in the bill. Right. The The extreme pivot does not hide the fact that you don't have that defense. Right. And it, it basically makes it sound like you actually don't care about you this don't, issue. Yeah, you, you don't care at all. You don't understand it. You can't explain why it's not there. You can't explain why the things that are there aren't. Like, they could also very easily say, you know what? What we've decided to do with the original Build Back Better agenda is break it into three phases. And now this is phase one. And phase one includes these issues. And the reason it does is because we decided to focus on these and we think that it makes sense for them to be in phase one. And And that's in phase two. And two will come next year. And for full transparency, like, I'm super enraged about paid family leave, like, obviously. But you could also do this for community college. You could also do this for the clean energy program, which was substantially cut back on. Are you going to do this all through executive orders? Is that is that your only plan? Or are you going to do this in legislative phases, like you're saying? Like, if we can keep the majorities, these are our next priorities. They, exactly, just as an example. But there's, there's none of that. And it just feels so lazy or disingenuous, especially when they're trying to spout excitement. Right. Right? And you're like, get out of my face. So let's move on to Pete Buttigieg, because he also had the same job as Secretary Raimundo, um, trying to defend the state of the plan and trying to feign excitement. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's actually excited. I don't know. He was on State of the Union and was interviewed by Dana Bash. And here he is giving one of his very speechy responses, as you (laughs) shared earlier, Brendan. Families are ready for the support that has been lacking for a long time in this country. Uh, To finally have preschool for every three and four year old kid in this country. To extend that tax cut, uh, that tax credit, which means hundreds or thousands of dollars in the pockets of nine out of ten families uh, with with kids in this country. Uh, The urgency of making sure that uh, we we make it easier to uh, have a a loved one who needs home care by cutting those wait lists. And we're talking about things that are going to make a real concrete and urgently needed impact in American lives, not to mention, of course, all those transportation infrastructure opportunities that I've been talking about all year that, that we have a chance to deliver right now. So you talked about a lot of lot of uh, big changes that are currently still in this framework compromise. Uh, there is something that isn't, and that is paid family leave. You returned from paternity leave after welcoming your newborn twins, Penelope and Joseph. And I want our viewers to hear what you said on this show just two weeks ago about the importance of paid family leave. I campaigned on that. So did the president. The Build Back Better agenda includes provisions for paid family leave. It is long past time to make it possible for every American mother and father to take care of their children when a new child arrives in the family. So what do you say to the more than 100 million Americans who don't have access to the kind of paid family leave that that you just benefited from and who don't understand why the administration didn't fight harder to keep it in the bill? Well, look, it's something that we believe in. Uh, I believe in it. Obviously, it's personal for me. Uh, The same is true for the president. Uh, And it's something that we'll continue pushing for. But let's talk about what is in this bill. Child care credit, uh, the uh, support, financial support for millions of American families to be able to get child care in addition to free preschool for three and four year olds, in addition to that child tax credit that, again, is concretely meaning hundreds of dollars a month. 
and I'm not taking it away from you, but when you say you're going to continue to keep fighting, how are you going to do that? And then similarly, as Margaret Brennan did, she notes that they're entering midterm elections and the likelihood of anything else passing is close to nil. And so, again, <laughs> as my F-bomb alluded to earlier, the child care tax credit is only extended for one year, but you don't hear a sliver of that context in Secretary Buttigieg's response here, both times he mentions the child care tax credit. I do think, you know, the Biden administration needs and should tout what is in the bill. Like, that makes sense. Universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds will fundamentally be huge for millions and millions of families you're cutting the child care years almost in half or at least by two-thirds it's substantial but i think questions need to dig deeper about trying to have them answer to the things that were missing and again also in this clip nothing about the democratic women senators who were furious and are were trying desperately to keep it in the in the plan Yeah, I do appreciate Bash getting more specific here, saying, how are you going to do that? It's not good enough to say you're going to fight for it. What does that mean? That's so vague. And and why should anyone trust that you're fighting for it is going to do anything? Because clearly you were fighting for it before and you failed. So why should we believe you this time that you're going to succeed? Absolutely. There was something else that Dana Bash did that I thought was really good that I didn't really see on the other shows and that's calling out the giant elephant in the room and that's that Joe Manchin didn't want this. You know why it was dropped. It's because uh, Senator Joe Manchin uh, simply does not think that money should be spent on this in the way that it is being was proposed. What do you say to him? Well, look, uh, again, I'm a, I'm a big believer in this policy, and, and I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, I'm also a huge believer in the things that are in this bill in front of us right now. This is not half a loaf. This is a feast of good policies, some of which my party has been talking about, or even politicians on both sides of the aisle have been talking about for literally as long as I have been alive. And the chance to deliver it is now within our grasp. It is an extraordinary package that is going to make concrete uh, improvements in the lives of every American. And I can't wait to see it done. Obviously, you know, when, when you put together something this big and this complex, nobody gets everything that they want. The president has been clear about that. I don't think anybody uh, crafting their perfect package in their mind uh, would see it reflected here because this reflects the input right. of so many different people. Is it a fancy feast? It's like a fancy feast can for a cat served at a five-star restaurant and they're like it's it's fancy (laughs) so as i mentioned i think it's really important to call out the elephant in the room that there is literally two people in the democratic senate caucus who forced this to happen and i think not calling them out by name or not saying like what would you you know if you had more time how would you want to approach them or what do you think will be convincing in the future to Mm -hmm. convince these people who weren't for it right now what are you going to explore in terms of funding mechanisms to increase your your margin on this there's a way to do it to be like are you pissed at him And, and instead being like what's your political strategy to increase support right. for this bill. Yeah. The thing that's missing here is the paid family leave policy that Buttigieg was eligible for as a federal worker was passed in the Trump administration. Like literally the 12 weeks that every federal employee has was passed on a bipartisan basis during the last administration. So trying to understand 
why Manchin or others are against this for every worker when it's something that is eligible and supported for federal workers. Like that that connection has been missing. But the fact that like Buttigieg literally just took advantage of this benefit that just went into place that was passed by the Trump administration, but he can't get it done for like (laughs) private workers, people in the private sector is like there's a narrative there, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And would be helpful in having people understand why this is so enraging. Yeah, that fact would be very illuminating. I think we're probably going to not hear or talk about paid family leave for a while because Lord knows the Biden administration doesn't want to acknowledge the things that are not in the bill. And I'm sure we're going to move on to it, move on from it. But damn, it's disappointing. It's just disappointing to see the shallow coverage and the weak defenses completely accepted at face value. Well, I guess I would say at least it got coverage. You know, there were several provisions that I didn't get really much of any mention that were cut out of the bill. State of the Union, Senator Bernie Sanders did make news because he apparently is still fighting for the Medicare drug program that he and somehow he thinks he might be able to get it in by Tuesday. I don't know. He did make the interesting point that the VA is able to negotiate drug prices but Medicare cannot. And he's like, how does it make any sense that one agency can do something and another agency can't? I was like, oh, that's a great point. The answer is lobbying. (laughs) That's the answer. (laughs) All right, Naomi, that takes us to Dialogue Challenge. What do we have to uh, say on this spooktacular evening? (laughs) You know, I'm just really kind of still really thinking about narratives and and how much Mm. there's appetite for a certain narrative to be explored, developed, evolve. And, you know, I'd encourage our listeners to think about maybe a a narrative that they have assumed, you know, kind of set in stone and see if there's more iterations and, and more evolutions that might be a part of that dialogue. Yeah. Like when I think about political narrative, I feel like the default is often What's the prevailing Democratic narrative? What is the prevailing Republican narrative on this topic? And now let's go back and forth on it. And if I'm talking to a Republican, I'm going to ask about the Democratic narrative and vice versa. Or if I'm talking about a progressive, I'm going to talk about a moderate's narrative, you know. But there are so many other perspectives to take on an issue and angles to explore. And a lot of times the most interesting narrative is that of the person who is not in the room. And the person who is often not in the room on these shows is the American people, is the viewer. The viewer is just watching. They're not on the stage, right? And so that's where I think some of the most powerful conversations can take place when the narrative is from that perspective. It's funny you say that. I have been talking a lot about, you know, childcare with my girlfriends and friends in my network. And I had a friend who suggested, we were talking about like, what are potential solutions for, you know, the clusterfuck that is childcare. And I already dropped, I already used the F-bomb once, Brendan. (laughs) But I had a friend who mentioned to me about how hard it is for people to open up their own childcare centers, not just because, well, one, labor is really high, but Somebody couldn't afford... The cost of labor. Yeah, the, the cost of labor to, to run a childcare facility is really high. But even to do a private one for yourself, someone, you know, she knew someone, her own nanny, and 
this woman couldn't afford a mortgage in Southern California, right? The nanny couldn't? The nanny couldn't afford to buy a house where she would open up her own private childcare facility. Okay. And so it like, you know, it's like, why aren't there mortgage programs for people who would use their homes in this way? Right. And it was like, I hadn't even thought of that, you know? And I was like, of course, especially in places where housing is insane. Housing costs are insane. And then plus, you know, commercial space is even worse. And so it was just like this whole avenue of like, why aren't we making it easier for people to open up facilities who want to, even on like on a smaller scale? And so, well, if there's a new narrative or something you're like dying to talk about or explore, you know, you can find us on Twitter. You can find me at SotoNaomi underscore. You can find me at Beastitle and you can find the show at Polylogcast. You're also welcome to send us a note exploring any of these narratives and send us an email at podcast at polylog.com. Hope you had a great Halloween. A spooky Halloween. Bye. Bye. <laughs>